0: Do you believe that Donald Trump believes in American democracy? I don't think he actually knows what American democracy is. That's Dr. Fiona Hill, an expert on Russia and Vladimir Putin, who worked on the National Security Council under President Trump, then testified in his first impeachment hearing.
1: A specific instruction was that I had to go to the lawyers, to John Eisenberg, uh, our senior counsel for the National Security Council, uh, to basically say, you tell Eisenberg, Ambassador Bolton told me, that I am not part of uh, this whatever drug deal that Mulvaney and Sondland are cooking up.
0: I'm Margaret Hoover. This is The Firing Line Podcast. Hill has a new memoir out entitled There's Nothing For You Here, in which she details her unlikely journey from what she calls the coal house to the White House.
1: My experience growing up in the northeast of England, it was quite obvious that, you know, people were searching around for a fix to their predicament. She says she took the job for
0: Trump because she thought she could make a difference and was shocked by what she found. You had just said, Dr. Hill, that there are people in the president's inner circle who just didn't care about their national security implications.
1: Do you mean the president himself? Well, yes, I do mean the president himself.
0: She had a front row seat when Trump sided with Putin, with the whole world watching.
1: I will tell you that President Putin was extremely strong and powerful in his denial today.
0: You really thought about faking a seizure? I did. I wanted it to stop. Hill, who has also written a book about Putin, is very clear about her views on the Russian leader.
1: Well, what concerns me most is this present moment. If he is in power until 2036, he will have been up the helm in the Kremlin for 36 years.
0: She also says it's critical to pay attention to the ongoing threat to democracy right here in the United States from her former boss.
1: He was a danger. He is a danger. He will continue to be a danger.
0: Dr. Fiona Hill, welcome to Firing Line. Thanks so much, Margaret. You write in vivid detail in your new memoir entitled, There is Nothing for You Here about your childhood in the north of England, a place that was left behind by modernization and your family growing up that lived on the margins financially. You are the daughter of a minor and a midwife. Maybe you can expand on how the experiences of the places left behind have led to populism and even authoritarianism.
1: Well, thanks very much, Margaret. What I wanted to do with the book was tell a much bigger story than just my own biography. In fact, I used the biography as a vehicle to really kind of point to the perils of populism, because my experience growing up in the northeast of England, it was quite obvious that you know people were searching around for a fix to their predicament. And, I started to see you know, around me as a, as a teenager, people in the town would get swept up in these anti-immigrant movements, looking for someone to blame. And I've seen that through my whole career. Once I moved on and out of my hometown, and I ended up getting you know, a scholarship uh, to go to study in Russia um, or the Soviet Union at the end of the 1980s, the beginning of um, the collapse really of the Soviet Union at the time that I was there, there was also a kind of sense that There had been this massive collapse, and who was to blame for this collapse? And, you know, I saw that also in the United States at first hand. It just took some time for me to basically piece it all together. You know, so it's the observation in my own life about how my family were downwardly mobile, how I personally became upwardly mobile and moved out of this predicament, and the lessons that I learned along the way that I wanted to convey so that, you know, I'd help give other people a bit of perspective on how we got to this point in the United States. Where we elected what is, you know, uh, without a doubt, a populist president in the form of Donald Trump in
0: 2016. You write about being slurred for your Russia expertise in the Trump White House. But in fact, you are an expert in Russia. You wrote a book about Vladimir Putin entitled Mr. Putin Operative in the Kremlin. And your expertise in Russia began at an early age as a student in Moscow in 1987. I'd like to bring the conversation forward to today and draw on your expertise on Russia and Vladimir Putin. Putin served two terms, left the presidency and then returned in 2012. After signing a law this past April, resetting his own term limits, Putin could remain in power for more than another decade until 2036. You had incredibly close-up experiences with Putin, both in direct interaction and in your research. Explain to the viewers what concerns you most about his leadership?
1: Well, what concerns me most is this present moment. It's this decision that you lay out here to stay in power, not indefinitely, but essentially so. Because if he is in power until twenty thirty six, he will have been up the helm in the Kremlin, one way or another, for thirty six years. He just turned sixty nine, so by you know that period, he'll be eighty four. So I mean, this is you know already getting himself into the realm. That we recall from history of czars you know, who, you know, basically go into their dotage and die, or even worse, the secretary generals of the Soviet Union, the guys who used to stand on the mausoleum and were just one step away from being interned in it. And so, you know, you have here somebody who has become the be all and the end all of, of Russian politics. Some of his advisors say there is no Russia without Vladimir Putin. And so that's what worries me. It's that prospect of instability and uncertainty in Russia. And, you know, in many respects, Putin has to kind of prop himself up or basically give people the kind of confidence that he is going to kind of stay in power by mobilizing all the time against a common enemy or against an external force, and that's the United States. And that puts us in uh, a dangerous position as well, because, you know, Vladimir Putin is always railing against the West, railing against the United States to present himself as the champion, as the only person who can protect Russia and Russians against hostile external forces. You served in the
0: George W. Bush administration and the Obama administration. The day after President Trump's inauguration, you write in your book that you attended the Women's March outside the White House. So you clearly had some concerns about President Trump. And the very next day, you were offered a job in the White House and Trump's National Security Council. And you write, and I've heard you say that you thought you could contribute something to the country's response to Russia's meddling in the 2016 election. What did you hope to achieve?
1: But I really felt it was worth the effort for the national security perspective. And I'll be honest, I did think that, you know, once um, I was in the administration and that the people were in the administration, that their minds would be focused by the national security risks. Of course, I saw, you know, much to my, you know, Shock, I have to say, though well, perhaps not surprised, but shocked that really, you know, there were people in the administration, political appointees, you know, and others in that very tight circle around Trump who didn't care at all about the national security implications of what had happened. It was more just about the private, personal, or domestic political game. And that was, you know, of course, you know, deeply troubling, not just disappointing. And it did make it very difficult. The circumstances even more difficult to push back on what the Russians had done and try to you know, prevent that from happening before. And, you know, I became convinced in my time there that our domestic arena was even more problematic than the foreign policy perspective. You had just said, uh, Dr. Hill, that there are people in the president's center circle who just
0: didn't care about the national security implications. Was, do you mean the president himself or people in his inner circle? Who who are you talking about?
1: Well, yes, I do mean the president himself and, you know, people in, you know, the, the press office around him. Everything was very much, um, you know, focused on the president, you know, his constant campaigning and his views of everything. I mean, one example that I can give you, I don't really write about this in the book, but it's obviously seared in my mind from my own personal history and experience. When he retweeted um some videos uh that had been made by Britain First uh, a, a white supremacist you know highly reactionary alt right party or movement in the united kingdom and these were videos purporting to show muslims in various different capacities attacking uh you know christians or non-muslim white you know kind of people and the president retweeted them and there was an immediate incredibly strong reaction from the british government because many of the people from uh, this movement had been arrested you know for all kinds of assaults there'd been the murder of uh, the British uh, parliamentarian Joe Cox by someone who'd yelled Britain first, you know, in the um, whole swirl around Brexit. And of course, you know, the, the, the British uh, people have also suffered just recently the stabbing and killing of another uh, British parliamentarian, David Amos, in the south of England. So, you know, th- this was uh, uppermost in uh, British uh, politicians and public's mind about the dangers of this kind of extremism and the real life effects of this this. And so instantaneous response, very negative pushback from the British media, from the British embassy. And I went over to talk to Raj Shah in, in the press office and said, look, you've got to do something about this. You've got to push back. And they said, well, no, this has got nothing to do with foreign policy. Why are you even here? And I said, but look what's happening. And I laid it out and I said, look, the, the, this this movement, they're the uh, basically the successors to movements that I grew up with in, in Britain and saw them carrying out atrocities. I saw some with my own eyes in my youth. I mean, this is, you are basically the president is giving not just a voice, but credence, you know, to the uh, outrageous statements and positions of these people. And they basically said, we don't care. And I pointed out that if Raj, um, you know, with his you know, personal background had been living in the UK, he would be a target of this group. What did he say when you raised this to him? He just shrugged at me and looked at me and said, that's just not relevant. That's not what this is about. And I said, well, it is about this because the president retweeted these videos from this specific group. But obviously I made no headway whatsoever. You
0: write extensively about Donald Trump's, quote, autocrat envy, Uh, including for Putin. What similarities and differences do you see between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin?
1: Well, I think the differences are very telling because they fit in with this issue of Trump's divisiveness and deliberately pitting one group against another. Because Putin tries to avoid doing that. Although Putin is pretty brutal and vicious in targeting the opposition, people like Alexei Navalny, you know, basically trying to have the guy poisoned with Novichok, a banned nerve agent in his underpants, I mean, a pretty brazen assassination attempt, Uh, then making sure that he's sitting in jail and out of the political fray. For the most part, Putin doesn't go after specific Russian groups because in Russia's history, including its recent history, that kind of divisiveness, that kind of stirring and pitting one group against another has led to state collapse. The Russians gave us the word pogrom, pogrom. You know, basically uh, an ethnic uh, riot that leads in violence and death and ethnic cleansing. And in Russian history, pogroms were often precursors to revolution and also ended up being turned back against the state. So Putin tries to avoid any kinds of these major ethnic conflicts. Trump, on the other hand, seeks them out and pits groups against each other racial groups, ethnic groups, religious groups. Uh, people from you know different genders i mean you name it i mean he's he's looking for divisiveness because that strokes outrage and enables him to divide and conquer and play everyone off against each other putin does that externally but not internally but the similarities are also telling as well and again i'm not trying to suggest or just to make very clear that there is a direct correlate between the united states and russia because they're very different systems different histories and obviously putin and trump have quite different perspectives one came up through the dark corridors of the state the kgb and one is a total outsider and you know basically pushes back against the state at all times and you know our presidency is very different obviously from the russian presidency but it's this pushing out of term limits this desire to stay in power indefinitely this perspective of bringing in your friends and associates and personalizing power at the very center of power, be it in the Kremlin and in the White House, and basically having the presidency only tied to the people and opinion polling. Trump has himself almost basically abandoned the Republican Party, which may seem an odd thing to say, but he said that there is no Republican Party or either the party of Trump. So everyone in the Republican Party has to pay loyalty to him. Uh, basically in lip service to anything he says, including the big lie that um, he won the election in November 2020. And if they don't pass through these loyalty tests, then he'll make sure that, as he said, they'll be primaried and maybe replaced by loyalists. And you see that in Russia as well, that you know, Putin has loyalists around him, that um, people pay lip service you know, to him, that the, there is no party that he's part of. And it's really all about political polling And, you know, basically direct election from the people, which is, you know, basically the idea that uh, Trump is putting forward as well.
0: Based on your experience, Dr. Hill, do you believe
1: that Donald Trump believes in American democracy? I don't believe he does at all. I don't think he actually knows what American democracy is. Um, You know, in my interactions with him, it was very clear that, you know, he must have missed the basic civics classes that, you know, he would have had, you know, back in the 50s and 60s as as a young person. I don't think he really understood the the way um, that the, the government was structured. I don't think he really cared. He didn't think that he needed to actually understand all that. He, he seriously thought that he could run the whole of the United States out of the White House from behind the Resolute Desk with um, a small group of people. He didn't uh, see any need, as we all saw, to put people in positions uh, through the government apparatus. He couldn't understand what the functions were, and he certainly didn't believe in representational democracy. So there's no intermediaries, no political party, no representatives in Congress, it's just him. And congressional oversight, he rejected it entirely. We saw that during two impeachment trials. And we see that now in the investigation into the events of January 6th, where uh, former President Trump is basically telling people around him that they must not uh, basically uh, respond to the subpoena. And he's trying to invoke the idea of executive privilege, meaning his personal privilege, Again, he's very much focused on the powers of the president as a person and not on the actual system of the executive branch or all the other parts of government. Remember, he kept talking about my generals, my judges, including my Supreme Court judges, showing, you know, first and foremost, that he only understands the presidency in terms of raw power. It's a remarkable thing to hear a senior National
0: Security Council staffer say about the president of the United States.
1: Yes, and it's very disturbing. I mean, I did think he had a bit of a better grasp of it at first. But, you know, this is just from close-up observation over, you know, the two-plus years that I was there.
0: Take me inside Helsinki in 2018, when President Trump and Putin stood side-by-side side in that press conference, which you tried desperately to advise against. Um, Trump was asked who he believed about Russian 2016 interference, his own intelligence agencies who concluded that it happened or Putin who denied it.
1: I have great confidence in my intelligence people, but uh, I will tell you that President Putin was extremely strong and powerful in his denial today. And what he did is an incredible offer.
0: I mean, what you wrote about that pivotal moment is that you were so distraught, you even considered faking a seizure.
1: I mean, you really thought about faking a seizure? I did. I mean, I I wanted it to stop because it wasn't just humiliating for him personally, it was deeply humiliating for him, although he obviously didn't realize this until later. But I mean, what a profound humiliation for the United States. I mean, it showed us in the worst possible light because we had elected someone who could only think about himself and was only also fixated on the person next to him who was, as he said, very strong and powerful. You write, quote, Putin was Trump's counterpart, which in Trump's mind meant that
0: Putin was therefore more likely to be right than anyone else. What is the consequence of a president that doesn't believe his own national security staff, doesn't believe his own intelligence agencies, doesn't believe any of the information, only trusts and respects people with similar degree of power and strength that he perceives he has?
1: Yeah, so this is really problematic because for trump the presidency is everything and he is everything you know as the the leader of the free world you know the the most strong and powerful president uh internationally from from his perspective everything flowed through him and the ODPs were people of similar status which there were very few status and stature vladimir putin. President Xi of China, you know the two kind of great superpowers in a military perspective, because he also assumed that military strength also equated to political strength. Individuals like President Erdogan of Turkey or Prime Minister Orbán of Hungary, who had unchecked, in his view, political power at home. Then people like the Queen of England, somebody who commands great respect, has enormous celebrity. So for him, there was a very small elite group that he saw him in, very rich, very powerful, very famous. And for everybody else, was weak in that context. And so anyone in his staff, no matter who they'd been previously, like Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, who'd been the CEO of the world's largest company, once they started to work for him, they became just staff. So they were no longer of any importance. And I don't believe that he thought that any information that they brought to him had any import. And so when someone was strong and powerful in his peer group, he already deferred to them. I mean, I saw that with all of the other uh, individuals that I mentioned as well, President Xi, Prime Minister Orban, President Erdogan, and Queen Elizabeth II. There was a degrees of deference depending, you know, in his view about where they were in the hierarchy.
0: You said that you think that he doesn't believe in American democracy, but given his... Focus on these authoritarian leaders that he envied. Do you think that he is a danger to American democracy?
1: There's no question he's a danger. He was a danger. He is a danger, and he will continue to be a danger even now that he's out of office. Out of office, he is uh, still a danger, and I would um, basically warn that he could become even more of a danger, you know, as we get through the next uh, electoral cycles, because he's compelling people around him in the Republican Party to basically take steps that put our democracy in even greater peril. The suppression of voting rights, for example. I mean, we we just had a hundred years that women have had the vote. It's been, you know, in my lifetime since the 1960s, that we've had full suffrage for black Americans, other minority Americans, Native Americans. I mean, this has been a long hard fought slog to get full voting rights for the US population. And Trump is trying to push those back because he knows that he only has a minority of support. And those around him are enabling this effort, you know, to really try to enforce here minority rule to make it very difficult for someone to prevail through the popular vote and to kind of really kind of constrain the votes that will be counted for the Electoral College. Because he learned in 2016 How to win an election in the complexity of the US system. And so all of the efforts are now focused on ensuring that that may happen again in 2022 in the midterms. You know, these are all part of a cycle because authoritarian leaders, which I actually include Trump in, always figure out how to get themselves to the positions they want to through the ballot box. Putin rose to where he is through the ballot box and through the manipulation of uh, the electoral system. And we're witnessing this happening in real time here in our own country. How grave is the danger, Dr. Hill? I think the uh, danger is very grave. It's very severe. I'm extraordinarily worried. And I became um, really worried, you know, during my experience in the first impeachment trial. And even more so by the fact that there was a second impeachment trial after the mob stormed the Capitol building. I mean, that should have really been a wake-up call for everyone watching. Uh, including in the Republican France. Those are the kinds of scenes that you have seen in other histories. You know, the storming of the Bastille during the French Revolution comes to mind, the storming of the Winter Palace in uh, 1917. In each case, those were symbols of repression in France and in Imperial Russia. And the uh, House of Congress, the Capitol building is supposed to be the exact opposite. It's supposed to be the symbol of people's representation, not of repression, suppression, or oppression. You know, all of these... Uh, ideas that uh, the people who stormed the building had in their heads are antithetical you know, to the whole fundaments of our democracy. And it shows how far we have fallen, what deep trouble we're in. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Nunes and members of the committee, thank you for inviting me to testify before you today.
0: Help me understand why the impeachment trials make you worried about our democracy.
1: Well, I saw that um, among the members of Congress, there were many who saw this exercise as just a political game. Just another round in the kind of games that have been played in partisan brinkmanship over the previous four years. There were a lot of people who didn't take you know, any of our testimonies in the whole exercise at all seriously, even though, you know, like us, uh, those of us who were called up to testify, public servants, they're also public servants, albeit elected. We've all taken the same oath of office and to, you know, serve the country and to uh, basically adhere to the constitution. Uh, none of us were supposed to be there for personal private game or, you know, private power. Uh, members of Congress are supposed to be representing all of their constituents, not just the people um, who elected them. But they were all, you know, basically, uh, you know, one way or another, uh, particularly on the Republican side, although, you know, also on the, some on the Democratic side, playing out a kind of a, a partisan game of who wins and who loses, trying to score, score points. And so, there was not sufficient, I think, attention being paid to the importance of the checks and balances in the system and the role of Congress in exerting oversight and also being able to hold a president to account. I mean, that was their responsibility. It was their obligation. And, you know, they didn't, uh, they didn't pick up on this. And so I think, you know, for myself and for the fact witnesses who came forward at, you know, great risk to ourselves, you know, it was very disappointing, disheartening, dispiriting, you know, you name it, to see other people not holding up their side of the bargain and to take this all seriously and to really pay attention. All the gamesmanship about who would uh, testify, who would not. You know, we're seeing this all playing out also on the events of January 6th, that people are just pushing back against the commission and refusing to take it seriously and refusing to live up, you know, to their own obligations and responsibilities, people who entered public service. You have said that if Donald
0: Trump makes a successful return to the presidency in 2024, quote, democracy
1: is done. What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is that he is basically trying to come back again on the basis of a lie. He has repudiated the outcome of the 2020 election, and yet he's expecting, you know, to be reelected in 2024 on that very basis of, of rejecting. That's all his rallies, all of his campaigning. You know, we saw not too long ago a major rally in Iowa attended by all of the grandees of the Republican Party. And the vast majority of themes in the rally, in uh, his speech, were related to the fact that the 2020 election was stolen from him, that he was the rightful president, that he had been elected, and that others had stolen the election away from him in 2020. So that is the main thesis. That's the main propelling force behind his bid for re election. So just that basic fact of how he is campaigning is in itself a massive problem because he is rejecting. The democratic system and the outcome of the 2020 election. Do you
0: believe, though, in the scenario where he runs again in 24 and is justly elected, democratically elected through the Electoral College, that his presence in the White House means democracy is done?
1: Well, this will be on the basis of a minority rule because we're already seeing, you know, in key states, swing states, that there are efforts being made by uh, Republican political leaders to constrain the votes of people who are not republicans and again look i'm not a partisan person i find it very painful to have to you know call this out but there is one political party here that is trying to stop fellow americans from voting you know every system that you see where there is a minority rule is deeply unstable I mean, we know that in, you know, Russia, for example, you know, that's essentially what Putin has done because there's been suppression of the vote, preventing people from going out and voting who would probably vote for the opposition, a really, you know, depressed turnout. And at this point, Putin is not ruling on the basis of the majority of the population. And we've seen that in many other settings as well. And again, this is inherently unstable and really has an awful lot of, you know, risks for the future of the United States. So it might be legally legitimate, as you said, in the electoral college, but it will be seen in the eyes of all of those who you know vote, and, and their votes are counted through you know, the popular vote as inherently deeply illegitimate. And we then are setting ourselves for even more violence if people feel that their voices are no longer heard through the ballot box, and they have to take to the streets. Then we end up in you know in the potential of a of an open civil war. We're already, in my view, in a cold civil war. We have periodic eruptions of violence. And people are now seeing that the ballot box and Trump has been telling them that the ballot box is not fair. You know, kind of your vote doesn't count. Well, that will kind of be the also the message to, you know, the majority of people who won't vote for him in 2024.
0: You have said, Dr. Hill, quote, I am really worried about Biden with respect to the promises that he made to reinvigorate democracy in the United States and around the world. What should the Biden administration be doing that they're not?
1: Well, the real challenge for Biden himself and for the administration is to pull the Democratic Party around behind them. I mean, I really you know, hope that people who are in the Democratic Party in Congress, that their minds get concentrated by the real peril and challenge here. Because this is a time, in fact, for all Americans, no matter who they are, to put all of these divisions aside, to stop thinking of things in terms of a win or a you know, defeat uh, for your team over another, your team narrowly defined, be it blue or red, and think about the United States and the real risks to our democracy. And that's the real challenge for Biden. I think Biden himself gets it, but I'm not so sure that the people, all the people around him are in the same page at this point.
0: In a conversation on the original firing line with William F. Buckley Jr. in 1990, President Ronald Reagan, who was just out of office, reflected on the respect and the affection that he had for the Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev, who was opening the Soviet Union to the West. Listen to this. There was a chemistry that was beginning there between us and uh, things that uh, were taking place and now being there and seeing he is talking openly of free enterprise and he is talking openly of opening up the land of the Soviet Union to private ownership. In other words, bring in capitalism in these areas. You you write in your book, when you were in Helsinki preparing for the summit with Trump, images of Reagan and his meeting with Gorbachev played on a continuous loop in the state rooms where you sat. You know There was a real sense of hope at the end of the Cold War, Uh, not just that the Soviet Union would cease to be a military threat, but that Russia might adopt the model of Western democracies Uh, capitalist economies, what was the purpose of of showing those images of Mikhail Gorbachev and Ronald Reagan?
1: The whole idea, I think, was to focus everyone's minds, including Trump's, on that hopeful period, exactly as, um, as we saw. Not just in the hope that we might return to arms control and some of the unfinished business of the 1980s, but to remind us that there was a period when the relationship was on a different trajectory and that perhaps it just could be again at some point. I mean, I think it was kind of a reminder of you know, the, the futility of these kinds of confrontations and the fact that time had moved on. And even at the peak of the Cold War, Reagan and Gorbachev had found that they actually had some, you know, not kind of admiration for fellow strongmen, but actually some fellow feelings, some real human connection. And they'd actually found a way to talk to each other, not talk at each other or talk past each other. And that that real true communication, that fellow feeling, that shared perspective that they needed to get something done had changed the world in that moment. It really had a very profound impact. But I think that those sentiments still hold true. We do have to think about how we can create a better future here. That should be concentrating our minds, not just in America and about the future of American -American democracy, but also in international affairs. We've got so many huge issues ahead of us. The pandemic and climate change are two of the biggest existential threats to mankind, not just, you know, the, the constant threat of nuclear weapons, that we need to get some collective action. It comes through real direct communications and human fellow feeling. That's
0: that's wonderful. Dr. Fiona Hill, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for joining me here on Firing Line.
1: Thank you so much, Margaret. It's been a pleasure.